Good morning. It's been, oh, oh. been several people poking a little fun at me, I think. Said I'm supposed to jump up on this platform. I must have said that, I'm not sure. But I, I can do it, and I'm going to do it. I want you to watch. Notice what I said now. I'll jump up on this platform. <laughs> well, if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm back. <clears throat> I got to thank everybody for holding down the fort. Ronald and Titus did great jobs. I felt a little bit bad coming back after listening to their sermons last couple of weeks. Uh, they were awfully good sermons. Did us a, did me a world of good. I guess it did you all too. But um, got my hip put back in place. Well, actually, I got another hip. But uh, they say it's going to stay in there this time, and uh, I'm going to hold them to it. But uh, well, that's enough about me. I want to thank you all uh, for all the telephone calls and, and the cards we got, uh, a lot of food we got. Uh, you were so sweet to us while I was uh, down for a while, and I appreciate it so very much. Uh, you're, you're lovely people, and I love you uh, with all my heart. Well, we're going to talk about the Lord a bit. We want to go on to uh, our subject, and that is, uh, this is Lesson 5, Matthew 5 and 5, discussing blessed are the meek. We've already discussed uh, verses 3 and 4. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted today. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek comes from the Greek word praos. Basically, it means gentle or soft. Gentle word, soft word, uh, that's uh, meek. Uh, when you apply it to a human attitude like we're supposed to do, it means to be gentle of spirit, to be submissive, quiet, tender-hearted. So that's the idea of this word meek. That was unacceptable in the first century. This was a, an attitude that was completely foreign to society. It was, a, it was a rough, rough time to live. People were not meek. They were mean. They were all mean. Jews were mean. The Romans were mean. Stuff went on that was just absolutely unbelievable. It was a hard time filled with harsh people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul said, We preach Christ and him crucified. The crucified Messiah. That's our sermon. To the Jews, this was a stumbling block. The Jews thought that the notion of a crucified Messiah was wrong. Of 
according to the law of Deuteronomy 21:23, he who is hanged is accursed of God. How could the Messiah be hanged on a cross? The Jews found Jesus completely unacceptable because Messiah would never be treated that way. The Messiah was going to ride in on a white stallion. He was going to lead the Jewish nation against the Romans and defeat them. And then along came Jesus, and they did not like what they saw. To the, to the Greeks, this notion of a crucified, resurrected Messiah was foolishness. The Greeks believed that the, the body was an evil thing. It was a temporal thing destined to destruction. There was no good in it. The body was just vile, a vile instrument. To have a body resurrected, therefore, was unacceptable to the Romans. And they couldn't accept Jesus as Messiah either. So what we find in the first century, and we see it fulfilled in Scripture, is that both Roman and Jew found Jesus unacceptable because he was everything he wasn't supposed to be. What does that mean? That means they rejected his teaching. Blessed are the poor. Happy are those who are destitute spiritually. Happy are the sad. Happy are the meek. All oh, this is just foolishness. That's the way they felt about it. And they rejected his teachings. What exactly are we to derive from all this? The belief was, especially among the Romans, blessed are the strong, the wealthy, the proud, men like Caesar. Amongst the Jews, they would think of a man such as Moses, a man who led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, a warrior man, a man who could take the nation into battle and be victorious. He was a fighting man. He was a leader. He was what they looked for in a leader. And this is what they looked for in Messiah. But he's talking about being mean, meek. And to be meek is to be gentle of disposition. It was completely unacceptable. In Acts chapter 3, verse 22... Moses said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Had the Jews paid attention to the scriptures that they claimed to adore, they would have understood that the Messiah was going to be in many ways like Moses. And one of the things we learn about Moses, this warrior, this valiant leader, we're told in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek. More than all people who were on the face of the earth. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. <clears throat> when I was younger 
uh, and I'd read about meekness. James Paul Anderson always popped up in my mind. To me, he was the epitome of a meek person. He talked softly. He was very gentle, very compassionate, understanding. He had empathy. And he was just a sweet person. I thought he was meekness personified. I still think he was, but not because he spoke softly. I've never spoken softly. I've always been loud. I've always been easily excitable. And I could never think of myself as being a meek person, basically because I misunderstood what a meek person was. A meek person is much, much more than a person who just speaks softly. Or, or, or a person who may appear to be uh, weak. A meek person was a man like Moses, the meekest person on the earth. What does that mean? He was gentle of spirit, submissive, quiet, and tenderhearted. Moses was everything in this regard that God wanted in a man. He was the perfect man when it came to meekness. And we know a lot about Moses as far as his strength, his courage, his ability to become angry. Moses strikes us in a lot of ways, but not meek. And yet God said he was the meekest man of all. Meekness is required of all people. All of us are required to be meek. And we have to understand what it is, what it means to be meek. Meek is an Old Testament requirement. You had to be meek in the Old Testament. In Job 5 and 11, Job said he sets on high those who are lowly. And those who mourn, he lifts to safety. The lowly and those who mourn, the meek. These are the ones that God protects. These are the ones that God looks upon with great care and consideration. David said in Psalm 25 and 9, the humble God guides in justice. The humble he teaches his way. The meek. These are those that God takes specially good care of. It's also a New Testament requirement as well. You can read Titus 3 and 2 if you want to. In Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, Paul said, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, meekness. Meekness is my attitude towards you. Having the right attitude. It doesn't matter if I speak loudly or I speak softly. Our natures vary from person to person, and we're different. But when it comes to our feeling towards one another, we can all have the proper feelings, the kind of feelings that God has. In Colossians 3 and 12, Paul said, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
We don't read the word meek here, but this is what it means. This is meekness in action. It's caring for one another, loving one another, looking out for one another, protecting one another. This is what it means to be meek. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, James said. And God will lift you up. The meek person, he exalts. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, Peter said, that he may exalt you in due time, in the right time. When the time is perfect, God will exalt you to your elevated status. Meek does not mean weak. I remember watching a cowboy movie one time, and this cowboy, an outlaw, he said, you're not dealing with the meek and lowly Jesus. And that rubbed me the wrong way when he said that. I quit watching the movie, and I went in there and started studying, trying to understand the meek Jesus. Those of us who know Jesus, we know he wasn't weak. He, 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 was a, he was a courageous man. He was bigger than life. He was indeed the lion out of the tribe of Judah. There was no one like him. When it come down to true manliness, he had it all. In Proverbs 25 and verse 28, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit, whoever can't control his vessel, as we studied in Bible class. Well, what about this person, Solomon? Well, this person, they're like a, a, a broken down city that has no walls. Weak, susceptible to being raided, overrun, taken down. The person who can't control his own spirit, he can't control his own tongue, he can't control his own attitude, his actions, his, his words. The person who has no control over the vessel that he lives in, why, well, he's no more than a broken down city. He may look mighty. He may sound mighty. He may say he's mighty. But no, he's not. Not in reality. In Proverbs 16 and verse 32, Solomon said, He who is slow to anger is better than a mighty man. And he who rules his spirit is better than the man who can take a city. To have control over our emotions, to have control over our attitude, to have control over our feelings, what we love, what we hate. To be able to control ourselves is the greatest strength a human being can possibly possess. Even the man who takes a city hasn't got that much strength, though he's done a mighty thing. It's harder to control ourselves. Matter of fact, according to James, it might not be possible when it comes to the tongue. 
When you think about meek, think about power under control. I was studying on this the other day, a couple weeks ago, I guess. And I was thinking about power under control. When I was young and foolish, I liked to burn the tires off a car. And the farther they burned, the better I liked it. And I'd get out there in the middle of the road and I'd put my foot down on that brake. And I'd rev that motor up. I'd press that gas feed down. I'd get that car where the back end would raise up and the front end would drop down. And then all of a sudden I'd turn it loose and I'd burn them tires. Isn't that dumb? Then I had to go buy new tires. But I burned them. But I thought about power under control. I thought about that car when that front end was down and that back end was up and that thing was <laughs> wanting to go. There was power. It was under the control of my brake. Power under control. It doesn't mean we don't get angry. We will get angry. But we can control our anger. It doesn't mean we'll never feel slighted. We will feel slighted. But we'll be able to control our tongues and not say anything. Meekness is much, much more than speaking softly and being oh so kind. It involves strength, a great deal of strength. Meekness is not cowardice. Did you ever think meekness was cowardly? I did. Your meekness turns the other cheek. That wasn't the way I was raised. I was raised in Detroit. I was raised in a family where the men, they took care of business. And I was expected to take care of business. A man didn't turn the other cheek. A man took care of business. And I used to think that being meek was being cowardly. Afraid to deal with a problem in front of you. And I, I didn't appreciate meek at all. But when I was about 24, I became a Christian. And I learned something I never understood before. It was easier to fight than it was to not fight. Having to restrain yourself when you want to hurt someone is very hard to do. When you hurt someone, feels good, especially when they deserve it. 
But when you have to restrain yourself from doing that, it can tie your guts up in knots. It's very hard to do. And I learned that being meek was much, much harder than taking vengeance. It requires a lot of strength. Power under control. That's what meekness is. It's not cowardice. It's easy to strike back. It's hard to do the right thing. Very hard. And it takes all you got to do it. Peter said, for to this you were called, because Christ, he suffered for us, and he left us an example in the process that you should follow in his steps. You should do like he did. That would be so difficult when you look at the life of Jesus. He committed no sin. Deceit wasn't found in his mouth. He never tried to deceive anybody. He was always honest and upfront. When he was reviled, he didn't get even. He didn't retaliate. He didn't go for vengeance, but just the opposite. When he suffered, he did not threaten. To me, it's natural to retaliate when you've been violated. But Jesus didn't do that, not because he was afraid, but because it was the right thing to do. That's what makes it so hard. It's so easy to take our own vengeance. Instead of doing that, our Lord committed himself to God who judges righteously. Instead of seeking his personal satisfaction for those who harmed him, he left it in the hands of his father and let God do what he thought best. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, that's what Paul was talking about. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to anger. Squash your anger. Sit on your anger. Restrain your anger. Don't take vengeance, for it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I'll repay him, but you won't. I know that the Lord can exact much more punishment than I ever could. And I know when, when somebody wrongs me, I know it hurts him. You know, and you know it too. When someone hurts a member of your family, maybe it's a, at a ball game and somebody pushes your kid around. Or maybe it's at school and somebody bullies your child and causes them to have a very bad day. Or maybe it's an adult that mistreats your child, your son or your daughter, your spouse. You know what happens? 
your body fills with rage. How dare you touch what belongs to me? Well, God is our Father. Doesn't he think in a similar manner? Isn't he affected when somebody wrongs one of us? Doesn't it make him angry? John, sit on your wrath. Keep your mouth shut. You let me take care of it. I know how to take care of it. In the best, most productive manner. And sometimes that's an opportunity for God to lead a person to salvation, which we're not necessarily looking for at that moment. But, of course, our Lord does. In John 2, 15, there were people in the temple. They were making money off of religious things, changing the money, foreign currency, into Jerusalem currency, buying animals in order to sacrifice. You, you might buy a lamb that was worth about three bucks, and they would charge you $25 because you had no other choice. You either bought that lamb or you didn't have a lamb. And you had to have a lamb for sacrifice. So they were gouging everybody. And Jesus saw them do that, and it upset him. He became angry. The text says when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Imagine that in your mind, if you will. He made a whip out of cords. And he started chasing everyone out of the temple. He turned over the tables. All this money, that money just flew everywhere. Now imagine, these are the people that have the power. These are the people that can cause him a lot of trouble, a lot of grief. These are the people that can put him in stocks and send him to prison. But the meek and lowly Jesus, he took the problem head on. My father's house is a house of prayer. And here you want to make it into a den of thieves? He couldn't tolerate that. Now, mind you, the text doesn't say our Lord ever whipped anyone. Personally, I don't think he did. But he scared everybody, I'm sure, because <laughs> they ran. Jesus never lifted a finger to defend himself. But when it came to the house of God, he stepped up quick and defended what belonged to his father. In Matthew 26, verse 53, at a different time, different situation, Jesus said, I can pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. This, of course, is before the crucifixion. I can pray to my Father, and he'll send me 12,000 angels that come to my aid, they'll protect me, and they'll carry out my will. You know, the Lord could have done that any time 
during his lifetime while he lived in a body. Those angels were always at his disposal. He was God in flesh. All he had to do was call for the angels to come and protect him, to come and take the battle, to come and clean everyone out of that temple area. He had but to will it, and it would have happened. But he didn't. Power under control. He went far enough, but he didn't go too far. Meekness, that's what it means. Enduring tribulations can be good for the soul. It's hard to understand. We touched on this just briefly this morning. But enduring tribulations can be very good for the soul. Hebrew Christians were persecuted time and again throughout the scriptures. You can run these references. These are only part of it. There's a lot more. But the Hebrew Christians were punished over and over and over again simply because they belonged to Christ. But they didn't strike back. As a matter of fact, the Hebrews author will say in just a moment, Paul said we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. Must. That means you got to. Must. You got to. You got to pass through many tribulations in order to get to the kingdom of heaven. Think of tribulations as being a, a, a giant tunnel. And as you go through that tunnel, there's various stations. And whenever you get to that various stations, somebody pops you one. Or somebody kicks you one. Somebody spits on you. Someone shoves you. Someone coughs on you and makes you sick. Someone calls you bad names. Someone says something about your mom or daddy, your child. Time after time after time after time after time, you have to deal with tribulations. Paul said we must pass through these many tribulations in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. What happens is when we endure tribulations, we do indeed endure the tribulations. We come out stronger than we were before the tribulation. We grow spiritually. We go closer to God. We grow closer to one another. Our faith increases in every way and respect. We grow stronger. That's why we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18 and 7, Jesus said, Woe to the world because of offenses, the spitting, the kicking, the snorting, and carrying on. Woe to the world because they treat people that way. Woe to those who treat people in this manner. For offenses must come. They've got to be a part of our life. We've got to endure it. But woe to that man that brings that offense. He'll have to meet his maker. And it won't be a pleasant experience. The tribulations 
Help us to become like our Lord. Prepare us to live in heaven. Without those tribulations, we'd be in a whole lot of trouble. They're going to come. But the meek person endures. He doesn't give in to it. He endures. <clears throat> they knew the best was yet to come. And this is, this is something I think when we learn and believe, I think this is one of the, the greatest strengths we feed out of. No matter what we're going through, the best is yet to come. Nothing, nothing that causes us to suffer is desired. We don't like it. We suffer through it. But we endure. We hold on. We wait. Because a better day's coming. And we know that. This is how Christians endured in the first century. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said, we do not lose heart. Talking about tribulations and the experience. We do not lose heart because of these things. Even though the outward man is perishing, decaying, growing older, more feeble, can't see as good, even though the outward man is slowly but surely wasting away, the inward man is renewed day by day. As the body decays, the spirit within the body is growing stronger. Tribulation after tribulation after tribulation after tribulation, the spirit grows stronger. We learn more about God. We learn to love God more. We learn to trust God more than we ever did before. The outward man is perishing. The inward man is thriving, preparing every day for heaven. Our light affliction, it's, it's only for a moment. I was retired when I was 43 years old because of a spinal problem I have. I still have that spinal problem. It's been five or 10 years since I was 43. <laughs> been a little while. I've never thought of it as a light affliction and I never thought of it as lasting for only a moment. It seems like it's lasted all my life. Well, what is Paul talking about? In lieu of eternity, you and I are going to live forever. When God created us and put us in our mama's womb, in the body that was conceived, from that moment forward, we'll never cease to exist. 
will always be somewhere. When you compare the eternal being that we are with three score and ten years of suffering, it's only a short time. Hardly even noticeable. But all this is working for us on our behalf a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In Acts 8, 1, Paul was consenting to the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except apostles. These people had become Christians. They were the children of God. And now suddenly, they're being persecuted and hounded by Saul of Tarsus and his army. They're having to leave their homes behind. They're having to leave behind their hardware stores, their grocery stores. Everything they had, they were having to leave it behind and run for their lives. You know the first question that probably comes to most people's mind? Where is God? Oh, God was where he always was. They wouldn't have understood it then. But actually, what was happening was working out for the best. Because as they ran, they went everywhere. And they were preaching the word of God wherever they went. Sometimes what seems so bad can actually be so good. We don't know. We just don't know. Christians withstood unbelievable indignities, and they did it with great joy. The Hebrews author, speaking to the Hebrews about their sufferings, he said, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. What does that mean? They were taking their stuff. People were just coming in and taking their stuff. Somebody wanted the car, they went in and they took the car away from them. They would take their motorcycle, they'd go out and get their boat and take it to the lake. Whatever these Christians had that the Romans wanted, they'd simply go take it away from them. Now, the, the, the author is saying, you joyfully accepted that. How can you joyfully accept that? They did. They must have had a reason. As their things were taken from them, as their property was being looted, plundered, as our Hebrew author says, they knew a better day was coming. They knew that they had a reward that was awaiting them in heaven and in eternal home. with more goodies than they ever could have imagined. There's so much we don't understand. But I do understand that the Lord wants us to be meek. I know it's hard. Really hard. But if we got our heads screwed on right, 
we understand who we serve, we can always endure. Paul said, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So much we can't understand. But we can't understand what the Lord wants us to do. The meek and lowly Jesus always came to his disciples' defense. I don't have time to go through it. But he always defended his disciples just like he defended the house of God. Whenever someone took issue with his disciples, he was there lickety-split. And he would take over the argument. And he never failed. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. That'll be our lesson in two weeks. What does it mean to inherit the earth? It's difficult. A lot of times to do the right thing. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes temptation gets the better of us. Sometimes it's easier to strike back than it is to turn the other cheek. Sometimes we, we sin. We can repent of our sins. We can ask God to forgive us. He's promised us that he will. If there's anything amiss in your life, anything that stands between you and the love of God, don't let it stand. Be courageous and ask God to forgive you. 